They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they make. Good evening, ladies and germs, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the present day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear spookasonic audio from our luxury studio at an archaeological dig in the Iraqi desert, where I'm sure these gruesome demon statues don't foreshadow anything. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Sabrina Gall. Hi, guys. Alex Kump. I'm a ghost. And Justice Hepburn. Hey, everybody. And our indefatigable producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, what up? This is episode 7, and tonight we're talking about two more films from 1935 at the intersection of love and mad science. First up, it's the immortal sequel from James Whale, Bride of Frankenstein. Then we'll be taking a look at Peter Lorre's Hollywood debut, Mad Love. How's it going, guys? You know, so far so good. Doing good. Good. Yeah, um, as of when we're recording this, the election has still yet to have happened. So, uh, things are going okay right now, but maybe soon everything's going to be terrible. Thank you for just ruthlessly dating this. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, no, I, I think that's part of, that. not that part of the, our whole, like, shtick, is that we're dating each episode? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> <laughs> each cover image is just like oh, a I newspaper from when we recorded it. <laughs> I was uh, I was worried about uh, you and Sabrina, Alex. Uh, I thought emotionally, might, uh, kind of emotionally and oh, physically. Thank you. I thought we might have to mount a twenty millimeter cannon in the back of Thad's truck and go on an adventure <laughs> to uh, extract you from Chicago after the Cubs won the World Series. Oh my God! Um, I, you you can still do that if you want. Yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, gang, before we got into the movies. Um, we are talking about 1935. Obviously, we touched on 1935 in our last episode when we talked about The Raven. That was a movie from that year. Uh, but I wanted to mention a couple more movies that we're not going to get to uh, in this episode. One of those movies is called Werewolf of London. Uh, and that was from Universal. And that was Universal's first attempt to make a werewolf movie. Uh, not nearly as famous or successful or good as The Wolfman. The only thing I have to say about it is that the werewolf makeup looks like Eddie Munster. Uh, then there was Mark of the Vampire, uh, which I mentioned back when we talked about Freaks because Todd Browning directed it. It was sort of a remake of Todd Browning's silent film, uh, the famous lost film London After Midnight. Uh, and it has Bela Lugosi, Lionel Atwell... Um, not much more to say about that, but I figured that was worth mentioning. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, do we want to get into Bride of Frankenstein? I've always wanted to get into Bride of Frankenstein. Buddy, me too. Let me get into it. <laughs> so, Bride of Frankenstein begins with a scene showing Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Mary Shelley discussing Mary's terrifying tale. She continues telling it, and we return to the burning windmill where the first film concluded. The angry mob, satisfied that the monster is dead, returns to the town with the comatose Dr. Frankenstein. However, the monster has survived, and after murdering two onlookers, escapes away into the woods. We then see Frankenstein recovering from his fall from the windmill and preparing for his wedding to Elizabeth. He is visited by a former colleague, the mysterious Dr. Pretorius, who tries to convince Frankenstein to collaborate with him in another attempt to create life. But Frankenstein refuses, having sworn off his old experiments. We then see the monster wandering through the woods until being shot by hunters and captured again by a mob and imprisoned in town. He escapes again and returns to the woods, where he is given shelter by a blind hermit who treats him with kindness and teaches him to speak. But the monster is once again driven away when hunters come upon the cabin and the ensuing melee lights it aflame. Stumbling down into a crypt to hide, the monster sees Dr. Pretorius and his two henchmen robbing graves. Pretorius welcomes the monster and asks for his help in forcing Frankenstein to make the monster a companion like himself. Pretorius once again confronts Frankenstein, and when Frankenstein again refuses, the monster carries off Elizabeth. Pretorius assures Frankenstein that she won't be harmed so long as he cooperates. 
The two scientists and the monster retire to Pretorius's lair, where they create a female creature using the same grisly methods as Frankenstein's first experiment. When she comes to life, the bride reacts with terror and confusion to the monster, and the monster pitifully concludes that they were never meant to be alive. He allows Frankenstein to escape, then pulls a lever that causes the lair to explode, destroying both living dead creatures and Pretorius, and once again allowing Universal screenwriters to avoid having to tie up the loose ends. The end. So, gang, what do we think of Bride of Frankenstein? It's the movie so nice they made it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, as a as a pretty big fan of the of the original Frankenstein, I thought it was pretty good. I kind of thought the in the original the highs and the highs are higher and the lows are lower, but this one is more consistent. It's consistently good and interesting throughout, and I think that it benefits from being weirdly episodic. Like, it's more like a series of vignettes about the life of Frankenstein and his monster than a just straight-up story like the first one was. But I think that works in its favor overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think I'd agree with you, Justice. I also really liked... Um, there was, for me, less ambiguity about whether you were supposed to feel sorry for Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. And because, I mean, in, the, in Frankenstein Prime... Uh, Frankenstein classic yeah um I felt I felt bad for the monster the whole time and like um you know between seeing him interact with this blind man and then forced out by the whoever I don't actually remember who hunters hunters there we go after the hunters forced him out like you really feel bad for him whereas in um the the first movie you have a lot you're a lot less sure about that yeah i think that in this film uh the monster is unambiguously sympathetic and even like besides for him just killing two people at the beginning any kind of wrongdoing by the monster the movie just sort of glosses over it and it really focuses on uh the character is sort of sympathetic pathetic actually maybe Obviously, we talked uh, way, way back in episode two, we talked about how much of a financial success Frankenstein was. And so, uh, naturally, Carl Emley Jr. wanted a sequel. Uh, And at the time, sequels were not commonplace. Uh, I can't confirm this 100%, but I believe that this is the first horror movie sequel. One of the first sort of like... I don't know. It's not the first movie sequel because those go way back, but probably it's got to be the first horror movie sequel at a time when remakes were much more common. You know, they would remake a a silent film as a a sound film, something like that. Uh, And Lemley brought back James Whale. James Whale didn't really want to do it. He thought that the first movie was really good, and he thought that making a sequel would just sort of ruin it. And so he agreed under a couple different conditions, one of which was James Whale would direct the big tentpole movie that Universal would put out in 1936, which was Showboat, uh, which is a movie musical. Uh, And also privately, Whale, uh, uh, Whale was given complete creative control. And also he privately decided that since he didn't think he could actually like top the original one, he just decided that this movie was going to be fun. Uh, And I think that explains a lot about Bride of Frankenstein, uh, because there's a lot of sort of playfulness and and you get um, a lot of authorial choices, which, you know, I think we'll probably talk about uh, later. Just for the record, uh, Showboat today is considered uh, one of the finest uh, movie musicals in history, but it was kind of a... uh, financial failure for Universal, and it actually hastened Universal's bankruptcy uh, in 1936, which led to the Lemleys being forced off the board, which led to Universal stopping making horror movies for two years. Um, So, unintended consequences. (laughs) Oh, also, this was James Whale's final horror movie. He never made another one. And uh, as I talked about in our Invisible Man episode, he didn't actually particularly like horror movies, and he didn't want to be known for them. But that's absolutely what he's known for today. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the coolest thing about this movie is that it's just super fun. Yeah, absolutely. It has some kind of spooky moments, um, some really, really cool, scary spots. But for the most part, it's just like a, a fucking like fun movie. And you didn't really super feel that with a lot of these other movies we've watched so far. You know, they're trying yeah. to either like, you know, beat you over the head with the tone of the film or otherwise are unintentionally funny. But this one is like fun and like good to get along with and... You know, if anyone's ever like, hey, let's watch this movie, I'd be like, sure. Yeah, this is um, 
far and away the most quotable film from this era. Like, I can quote fucking half this movie, and I've seen it, like, four times, maybe. <laughs> you know, especially Dr. Pretorius. Like, every line... We'll get to him, but especially Dr. Pretorius. Like, every one of his lines is... Uh, is immensely quotable, you know, when he says something like, to a new world of gods and monsters. God, he's such a ridiculous man. <laughs> I don't want to get too too into him, because I think we'll talk about Ernest Thessinger yeah. in a second, but uh, immensely quotable. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree with this being, like, a really fun movie. It, it feels a lot more like a movie you, you probably wouldn't go see in theaters, but, like, you'd watch with a couple of your pals because they, like, hadn't had the DVD hanging around, and and you'd, you'd like, feel happily... You, I don't know, I feel pretty positive toward it, even even now, you know? Yeah. Um, it is super quotable, I agree. But also, like, it does have those little extra kind of kicks of, like, making you feel stuff. Uh, mm. Especially at the end when they say, we belong dead. Oh god, yeah. It's yeah. just like, you, oh, like so I think I like like did an audible like slam poetry like mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh also uh another uh Blind Hermit. Yeah. Yeah, the Blind Hermit. Um but uh but from that end sequence, uh another uh monster quote is when she says she hate me like others which um uh, was uh, obviously the basis of the film She Hate Me. <laughs> That's a joke, uh, I think. But um, anyhow. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, The Blind Hermit. There's a lot of, like you say, it is sort of, um, who said this? Justice, did you say it was episodic? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is, a, it's an episodic kind of movie, and there's sequences, and like, like I, I sort of, uh, mockingly alluded to in in my summary of it. Th- there's the same episode with, like, the monster in the woods, hunters catch him, he goes to jail, he goes back to the woods, hunters catch him. You know, it's like the, there's, like, two sequences with the same sort of beats, uh, even though, obviously, they're different, you know. This town has nothing better to do than just, like, hunt this fucking thing down. <laughs> like, this is, like... You know, in the span of this town's life, this is probably like a month where they're just constantly being like, fuck, fuck this thing. Let's go kill it. I, I, I saw it. Hey, hey, Tom the farmer, fuck farming. Go kill this guy. Well, well, not not kill it. Just lock it up so it can be put on trial. I'm not sure what their end goal was there. Well, the burgomaster uh, apparently believes that he's nothing more than a criminal, even though he's obviously a hideous monster made of corpses. <laughs> but aren't we all on the inside? Yes. Aren't we all just walking corpses? Pretty much. Eventually, yes. <laughs> uh, also, uh, another trivia note. I This is another um, John Carradine has a cameo as an extra in a, in a Universal movie. Uh, because John Carradine is uh, one of the hunters who finds the monster in the blind hermit's cabin. Oh, hey. Uh, so again, when you see that tall guy, you're like, oh, it's John Carradine. So anyhow... <laughs> Anything we want to talk about with direction, cinematography? Uh, just to get the ball rolling, one thing this movie obviously does uh, is puts in a lot of Christ imagery. Uh, yeah. Which, that's like, typically, anyone who says Christ imagery talking about uh, American movies is like a, a lazy hack. Um, but this is a movie that is obviously, obvi- like, the monster is literally crucified. <laughs> oh my god. Then you have uh, the, the fade out on the crucifix on the hermit's walls while Ave Maria is playing. Um, <laughs> From the same sequence, uh, bread and wine. Yep, bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I was reading about this, and James Whale, I think you could probably imagine, was not um, a particularly devout man. Uh, and so the question is, why do you put this in? So obviously, like, the monster is a, a sympathetic character who... At least in this movie, is is basically misunderstood, cast out, tortured, and dies. So you can you can take that angle that this is just very straight faced, you know, sort of Christ imagery. Um, but I, I sort of can't rule out the idea that this was just part of James Whale's fun, uh, <laughs> and by making like a hideous walking corpse the Christ figure, uh, he was basically having a laugh. You know, that's sort of my theory. He does, um, like, Pretorius is identified with the devil early on. Yeah, he and... just explicitly says that he is, he he, uh, he shows his miniature creature. Oh, they're oh, so what? cute. His miniatures, yeah. uh, one of them is the devil, and he says, this is the devil, 
I think he looks like me, or do I flatter myself? Uh, and speaking of great lines, uh, yeah, absolutely. And in the original script, the monster, when he wanders into the graveyard, uh, where he eventually meets Pretorius, uh, the original script had him attempting to take Christ down from the cross. Oh. <laughs> wow. That does obviously is not in the final film, but... That wouldn't have gotten past the code. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is... I, uh, speaking of which, we may have mentioned this last time, but 1935 is basically the year where the uh, production code went into effect. So Yeah, can we... Uh, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but does someone want to go into a little more detail about what the code was? Because uh, for people who aren't super knowledgeable of, for some reason, of 1935's uh, history of film censorship. <laughs> that doesn't sound like our audience. Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the Hollywood Production Code was a form of film censorship instituted by the major motion picture studios. Uh, it was a form of, basically, self-regulation where they adopted a you know fairly strict code of what could and could not be featured in films, basically to avoid uh, government censorship. You know you have to understand that this is before film rating systems. Uh, so you know any movie that was playing a- at your local theater, that was just the movie that was playing, and there was really no way for a person to judge what kind of content would be in it. Uh, and so the production code basically codified that. Uh, so that m- movies would be able to be played basically in any theater anywhere in America. And so it has stuff like crime never pays. So uh, someone who, d- who is a criminal or, you know, does wrong always needs to be punished by the end of the film. Uh, you know, ob- it does obvious stuff like restricting uh, the amount of sex and violence in a movie. Um, you know, sex being really can't have any uh, and violence being... Um, it needs to be very tame, but then there's other stuff like, you know, uh, there couldn't be the uh, mockery of the clergy, uh, (laughs) sort of like stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my summary of the Hollywood production code. Good job. Also known as the Hayes code. Uh, the Hayes code. Yeah. And which had been, I don't know when it was created exactly the early thirties, but it really didn't go into effect until about 1935. So when we're talking about. Horror movies before 35, those are what we call pre-code movies. Um, so, for instance, just f- to give an example, uh, The Mummy, which we came out in 1932, we talked about in a previous episode, um, shows uh, in a flashback scene some guys being like gruesomely impaled by spears. So, in the 1940 reboot, The Mummy's Hand, they reused that same footage for The Mummy's origin story, but they cut the part where people were being gruesomely impaled by spears uh, because in the intervening time period, the production code had come into effect and you could no longer show people being gruesomely impaled by spears. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Hayes Code is also uh, super big when we're talking about depicting uh, homosexuality on the screen. Yes. Um, Even after it was eliminated, it still sort of held that one last uh, stronghold in terms of like film censorship by its own community. Yeah. As a side note, I was really hoping this was Hayes H A Z E code because no. <laughs> I would like to uh, bring our discussion to the film back to the film. Um, I want to talk about uh, this weird fucking opening scene with yes! fucking you know Percy Shelley and Lord Byron and Mary Shelley. It's super weird. Someone was like, "Oh, I wouldn't believe that they." had a you know more of this movie unless someone was like hey what did mary shelley have to say about what goes on <laughs> like the whole thing is just set up for mary shelley to be like oh yes i wrote this book but more happens afterward in my brain this movie is pretty much the pottermore of other like of horror movies <laughs> <laughs> like nobody asked for it uh but the creator was like you know i really want to tell everybody about you know these little fucking stories that happen after the actual thing that i worked on <laughs> and then we were all like, oh, okay. And now my Patronus is a swan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, the, the opening scene is interesting. And I think it might have to do with the fact that movie sequels were very rare. And also that the first movie was a contained unit that had like an ending and, mm-hmm. and had the monster die. So, you know, when they come back, <laughs> it's like, well, how do we get the audience back into this story, which was four years ago, which back then was a, no home video. So, you know, 
I understand where it's coming from. My real question is, uh, Gavin Gordon plays Lord Byron, and he rolls every single R he says. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're all fucking queer as fuck. Uh, well, it's, and we will get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hey, at least they're actually calling uh, Mary Shelley by her name. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and not and Mrs. Percy Bysshe Shelley. Yes. Oh, God, no. I, I, and she was, uh, yeah, she was, um, Mary Shelley was mentioned not only as her role, but like as like a separate tag, <laughs> um, which was great. Um, Elsa Lanchester, Mary Shelley, um, also played The Bride, which was interesting. And I did not realize until five, like 10 minutes ago. Uh, yes that's right and but it wasn't mentioned in the credits that you know in the which i is something i appreciated in the um, original frankenstein where boris karloff had like a question mark next to his name in the or next to his role and then in the end credits you had the monster boris karloff we didn't get that this time i'm not sure if that was an issue of the the movie we got or if that or if that was like an ongoing thing well i I think the fact that, um, you know, they're calling back to the first movie and they're being, you know, they're, they're doing that same, ooh, who could it be? Well, even though, like, you know, if you were to watch this movie carefully, you'd be like, oh, that's also Lanchester. She was in the beginning of the movie. Um, and she is credited, but just as Mary Shelley rather than as the monster. Mm -hmm. um, but they never, but they, do, I guess they don't have end credits? At, no, uh, they had the end credits yeah, and yeah. They, they, they neglected. Oh, they just, to... they just don't do it. They just don't change it. Okay. Yeah. And that, again, might have just been our. Uh, the copy we watched, we all watched, but um, I'm not. But it was still really irritating that <laughs> she wasn't mentioned a second time. Uh, I do uh, need to stop the conversation um, to say that uh, my Hollywood crush is um, 1935 Elsa Lanchester. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all I need to say, uh, Elsa Chan. If you're out there, <laughs> your wife is. Jesus. If, <laughs> if you're out there as a ghost. Yeah, no, it's funny. Uh, uh, she is mostly remembered for her like roles later in life and these sort of matronly roles. Um, but uh, yeah, in this movie, I just think she's a fox. What can I say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, she was married to my main dude, Charles Lawton, who mm -hmm. I may have mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, they had a sham marriage because Charles Lawton was gay. Aren't we but, all? Uh, I'm, not gonna... <laughs> I'm not going to feel that one. Um, so yeah, do we want to sort of get into the performances? Obviously, we have some returning actors. We uh, both Boris Karloff and Colin Clive return uh, in this movie from the original. So uh, Dwight, don't forget Dwight Fry coming back. Yes, yeah. Dwight Fry. Yeah, Dwight Fry in the same role, but as a different person. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because remember, Fritz died in Frankenstein. He, he can't did. be Fritz again, unlike the monster who. Can be the monster again. <laughs> yeah, well, he's Carl now. He's not Fritz. Yeah, well, Fritz died in Frankenstein. Dwight Fry has to play Carl now. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, Barnes. Get it together. <laughs> okay, obviously, Fritz was a hunchback, while Carl has a club foot. Get it right. <laughs> oh, my God. That's very insensitive of you, Barnes. <laughs> you know, you can't just you can't just group everyone's disabilities together into one fucking bubble. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better. Do better, Barnes. No, but uh, uh, I did want to mention uh, the makeup. Uh, Jack Pierce returns as the makeup artist, and the makeup for the monster has uh, changed. Uh, his hair is further back, and you can see bolts along his forehead, uh, as if his hair had been burned. Um, and also, because the monster speaks in this, uh, Karloff couldn't wear the, um, the mouth plate that made his cheeks look really sunken. So you can tell he does have sort of a more, um, he doesn't have the sunken cheek look in this movie. So. And it, it, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I couldn't, um, I read a bit about the makeup and I couldn't, I, uh, it escapes me if it is for the movie or for, um, stage performance. Um, but there is some of the, the makeup was like designed to make it look like, uh, the, the monster has been trying different brains to figure out something that works. Really? Huh. Yeah. So, like, in in creation, clearly, but, like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> just out with the old and with the new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, like, the his head was supposed to look like you could, like, pop the top off. Yeah. <laughs> so Frankenstein could keep shoving brains in it. Yeah. Is that supposed to, how we're supposed to forget that he has, like, a weird, deformed criminal brain in his head? Because, like, <laughs> uh, somewhere on the line, fucking Frankenstein pulled out his can opener and was like, hold on. <laughs> 
monster. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've got to bring your car in every 10,000 miles, so uh, <laughs> why not the same with your brain? Obviously, in this film, the monster learns to speak, which Karloff hated. You know, he thought it was just the stupidest thing possible. Yeah, I don't know. What do we think about the monster speaking? I like it. Uh, it was fine. Uh, like you say, he delivers some memorable lines at the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, I think that any stupidity of, you know, him talking pays off with that one line. Because that's yeah. like a fucking nail in the heart. See, I, I, I like that they, um, I really liked the, let's teach you how to talk scene. I, I really uh, mm-hmm. responded to the, why, good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, a, on a very personal level. <laughs> Bread. Smoke. Good. I just think his talking really helps him slot into the the protagonist role this movie kind of has him in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, having him persecuted and whatnot makes him sympathetic, but just to see him chilling and having a drink and the smoke and whatever with his buddy, like, and him vocating about that, I think it's good. I think it's a really good sympathetic move, and I like it a lot. Yeah, and in him becoming the protagonist, um, Frankenstein is really sort of pushed to the side. He's a less prominent character in this, and he mostly just gets bullied. Yeah, which is great, because he's not an interesting character. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not in this movie, at least. I I would argue that I I think that he is interesting in the original, but um, he doesn't do much except get seduced by an older man. I mean... um, I, I kind of like his, his mad science relapse that he has over the course of this movie. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good little mini arc of him being like, no, I'll never do it again. And then by the end, he's going full on, yes, it's alive. <laughs> I li- uh, he literally screams, it's alive again. Yeah. yeah. And like, how excited can you be? It's the second time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we created another person. Oh, so cool. Yeah, I, I did take a second to appreciate the improvements they did to the, to the set of the, uh, the lab. Um, there, the bed, the bed, I guess the bed that goes up to the, up to the ceiling was not clearly plywood on the other side. <laughs> they, they treated it a little bit. It looked, it looked, uh, looked, looked better. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of the creation scene, it's, it's obviously, like you say, they, they, it's more elaborate and it has some weird, the music in the scene is very odd. Uh, when they bring the gurney down after it's been struck by lightning or whatever, and the bride is, you know, you see her stir. Uh, it has this, like, romantic musical sting yes. that they also play at the end of the movie. I, it's so odd to me. It's, like, not the menace. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, this... Uh, it's, like, a weird parody of, like, the romantic angle of this film and the original film. It's, like, well, I... Actually, this might be, I might be onto something here. It may be that he's <laughs> grotesquely parodying um, marriage. Ah, yes. Oh, I love that. Um, I would like to mention to our, to our listeners, because um, we haven't mentioned this at all, that uh, this, this, the pacing of this movie is a little funny. You'd think this movie would be a much more about the bride of Frankenstein, and uh, this is literally the last, like, ten minutes. six to ten minutes of the movie is yeah. the create basically the creation and birth of, of of the bride. Yeah, to me that's like really the only fault of this film. Uh I I really like the idea of seeing Frankenstein with his bride and trying to figure out what all that's about um and instead you kind of spend the whole film being like what the fuck is this movie called Bride of Frankenstein for? <laughs> and it feels like the weird little homunculus people in jars get just as much screen time as she does. I yeah, will say... Those also rule. Uh, <laughs> those do also rule. I will say that um, I have to give it up for uh, Elsa Lanchester um, because in about five minutes of screen time, she puts in what I think is one of the most memorable performances in, like, monster movie history. I'd say in all film uh, history. Yeah, I mean, um, like... Obviously, really iconic look, but the way that she sort of the, the the weird like jerkiness to her motions and the frantic looking around and that literally all she does is scream <laughs> is like that. That's so eerie in a way that these movies just aren't otherwise. That there would just be 
they bring this creature to life, and all it does is just scream. Just like real life. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I remember being birthed in screams, but uh, <laughs> but actually, but actually, it looks like she was a much more complete woman to start with. It was a little. It seemed she seemed a little less hacked together. Um, <laughs> yes. And which makes it seem like she was brought to life um, from a previous um, existence a little more, which um, for me gives her the reason she can immediately uh, <laughs> immediately verbalize, vocalize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, notice that no, she should not be here right now. This is <laughs> <laughs> this is the wrong. This is a this is a no good thing, and. Um, give her some sort of uh beauty standards for her for her um, mate jumping back to the the laboratory and the creation scene mm-hmm. and also frankenstein uh being like a guy relapsing <laughs> once you get to the creation scene there's like some great camera work where it's it's just cutting between yeah. like the flashing in the laboratory and then almost close-ups of Frankenstein and Dr. Pretorius yeah. and like just just the rictuses on their face. Yeah. It's all really good. And the lighting is really interesting. It, it's it's like these close-up low angle shots with this really really stark uh, you know um, lighting um, that shows them in these this almost like really ghastly. Uh, it's really cool like you say. Uh, I did want to mention that everyone's um, favorite comic relief character actor, uh, Una O'Connor, is back in this film. Oh, yeah, uh, she is. also just screams. She Yeah, she screams a lot. Uh, I think uh, when we talked about the Invisible Man, uh, I mentioned that she was in The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, in which she played Maid Marian's nurse. The uh, Adventures of Robin Hood was obviously basically the proximate basis for Disney's Robin Hood. Uh, which makes Una O'Connor uh, an important actress in both the horror community and the furry community. <laughs> um, well, gang, uh, have we beat around the bush enough? Can we talk about Ernest Essinger? Because um, I love it. Love this guy. Uh, he had previously worked with James Whale on at least one other movie, which was uh, The Old Dark House in 1932. James Whale wanted him specifically for this role and specifically told Thessinger that he should play the character as basically a, a bitchy queen. <laughs> and the way he just relishes everything he says, he, I, I, in my opinion, he makes this movie. I, I just, I love every word that comes out of his mouth. Like when, you know, he's showing off to Frankenstein his, his little homunculuses, uh, and, you know, he says, uh, he's talking about the, the ballet dancer. Yeah, she says, you know, this one is a ballerina, but she's dreadfully boring. She'll only dance to Mendelssohn's spring song. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, just the, the combination of, of that script and the performance, uh, or when he calls two separate things in the film his only weakness. Uh, you know, first he says, Jin, it's my only weakness. And then he meets the monster and he says, Cigar, it's my only weakness. And it's like, <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry, I love it. Uh, I can't get enough of this guy. Much has been written about the gay subtext in this film. Tell us about it, Thad. I, I will, thank you. As I mentioned before, James Whale was openly gay. He was, um, I mean, like, sort of, like, uh, he didn't necessarily advertise it, but he, like, openly lived with a man his whole life, cohabited, and, and you know, didn't make a secret of it, uh, but it wasn't public in the way that the lives of Hollywood people are public today. Open for the uh, 1930s, yes. <laughs> yes, open for the 1930s. And... A fairly common interpretation of the novel Frankenstein, certain segments of which this film are based on, is that Frankenstein's sort of uh, creation in defiance of God's will and all that is the creation of life without a woman. And th- this, is, this is a, you know, um, a, a fairly common interpretation. I- I'm not going to go into whether or not I think that's correct. Uh, which is an interesting, if that was the case, Shelley sure did like seeing her husband get railed by Lord Byron. (laughs) Anyhow, so, you know, you can look at this movie as an extended sort of metaphor. (laughs) You have Frankenstein, who is about to be heterosexually married, you know, to this woman, uh, and then this uh, strange feminine man enters his life, tempts him away from uh, his wife, 
and the two of them engage in uh, an act of uh, unnatural life creation. Um, <laughs> and obviously, if that's what's going on, and I think that there's fairly good reason to think that James Whale did this on purpose, much like with the Christ imagery. Uh, you you kind of have to imagine him having a laugh while, while <laughs> doing this. And, and the whole thing, uh, Ernest Thessinger's character in uh, The Old Dark House was named Femme, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you can imagine like the, the, the sort of twisted stuff about marriage, the Christ imagery, uh, this whole gay subtext as embodying James Whale's idea of what what kind of fun this movie is. Yeah, I mean, and I guess you get that same sort of like kind of subtle um, message when you, you watch the, the monsters, um, you know, path as well. He becomes very close friends with a man and then immediately fails to become friends with any, um, any woman he's, he's encountered. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you know, the, the, the hermit says, uh, I've prayed to God, that he would send me a friend. You will be my companion and I, and I will comfort you. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's there. It's there. Yeah. I like the idea of uh, James Whale just sitting there watching the final cut and be like, mm, yes, this is delicious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, they shall How eat it delightfully off. troll. <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that's sort of the common analysis of this film. Anybody else? Uh, I don't know. Is there anything we, we didn't talk about? Um, I feel like we should touch on just the design of the bride herself, yeah. which I think is just absolutely phenomenal as her own monster and also just next to Frankenstein, her being all white, him being all black. Just that that dichotomy is it's just so fucking good. Yeah. And in the, the, the white flowing, you know, obviously wedding dress like dress. Uh, the the haircut, you know, it's all incredibly iconic for a reason. Yeah, uh, they based the haircut off of uh, that famous bust of Nefertiti. Oh, that's so cool. That makes sense, that, yeah. Like, oh, I see that. Um, also, cool story is that uh, Mary Shelley's dress at the beginning of the film was uh, super, super popular. Apparently, uh, traveled around the country and when all, uh, when Bride of Frankenstein opened in all the big movie theaters, it would be in the foyer for everyone to look at. Wow. (laughs) Um, so, uh, obviously only two actors returned, uh, well, aside from Dwight Fry. Yeah, don't you forget my boy. (laughs) Uh, yeah, two, two actors returned in the same role, uh, from the original Frankenstein. The third film in the series would be released in 1939, and that was Son of Frankenstein. So Son of Frankenstein also has Karloff as the monster. Um, And as the title would suggest, it's not about Frankenstein. It's about his son. So uh, obviously that movie is about the son of Frankenstein. Um, Now, I don't know if they would have wanted to make a third film starring uh, Colin Clive, uh, but they could not have because in 1939, Colin Clive uh, died at the age of 39, uh, from complications of his lifelong horrible alcoholism. Shit. Uh, so really, really actually quite sad. Uh, so these two movies, uh, that we talk about in this episode, uh, were some of his last films. Well, way to bring the podcast down, Thad. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyhow, guys, um, would you recommend Bride of Frankenstein? I definitely would. I would, uh, really enjoy watching this movie while getting drunk with friends. I think that's like the perfect way to watch this movie. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, I like it. I'd recommend it. Yeah, well, uh, I think you know my feelings. I, I think that this movie is just great. Uh, love it to death. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely recommend it. Yeah, it's good as hell. So what's what's the moral of this movie? Uh, sometimes horniness is good. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to our next movie where horniness is bad. <laughs> Whoa, don't give it away. <laughs> I think the moral is wine, good. The only thing that I could ever feel I can't believe it wasn't real You can't open your mouth
Well, gang, uh, shall we talk about our next film? I'd love to. All right, so next up uh, is also from 1935, and that is Mad Love. Justice, can you tell us what happens in Mad Love? I sure can, Thad. Uh, Mad Love stars Peter Lorre as Dr. Gogol, a mad surgeon who becomes obsessed with an actress, Yvonne Orlack, as played by Francis Drake. Uh, Yvonne rejects Gogol's advances, but is forced to come to him when her pianist husband, Stephen Orlack, played by Colin Clive, has his hands horribly mangled in a train wreck. Gogol removes Stephen's hands and replaces them with the hands of a knife-throwing murderer. This causes Stephen to lose his musical genius, but makes him into a fantastic knife-thrower. When Yvonne continues to reject Gogol, he decides to frame Stephen for murder and convince him that his evil new hands are responsible. Stephen is arrested, and it's up to Yvonne to find proof of Gogol's evil deeds. She manages to hear Gogol confessing very loudly to his crimes, but is caught by the mad surgeon. Fortunately, her husband and the police arrive in the nick of time, and Stephen uses his new knife-throwing skills to save his wife. Gogol dies, and the Orlacs are reunited. I'm going to admit something. That movie was really hard to summarize, because it, it, it goes all over the place. Also, uh, he still can't play the piano. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're still in crushing financial debt. <laughs> yeah, ends on kind of a bummer note. Then. <laughs> well, gang, what did we think of Mad Love? This movie's all over the place. Yeah, I think that uh, the only really like good part of this film is uh, Peter Lorre's performance. Yeah. yeah, which is great. Everything else is just sort of fine. I I, yeah. I think Peter Lorre is good enough that he sort of redeems everything else that's kind of not great about it. That's he's, fair. But because he's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot in this movie. There's a lot of scenes that I look back on. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. Uh, <laughs> like, I actually, I love the guy who plays Rolo, the knife throwing murderer. <laughs> oh, he's so pleasant. Great. He's so pleasant. It's like he walked in out of another movie. <laughs> uh, or like the guy who's like the American reporter. Um, it's like he's sometimes annoying, but like, so, you know, I, I thought some of his banter was good. Like when he says. Uh, Gin for executions, wine for weddings, beer for birthdays, and champagne. And the, the, Ooh, the what's French that for? gendarme says, what's that for? He says, oh, I don't need to tell you that. You're French. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's cute. You mean you know. fucking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about lovemaking. It's like a bit near the end where he's like, yeah, you know, we got to go catch him or else I'm out of job. And like uh, when they find the, the wax statue that has been broken, he's like, oh, I thought I was going to have a good murder for the front page. too bad it's not a dead body the wax statue is like such a weird element yeah i I like the scene well i like the scene it leads to at the end um uh where she has to pretend to be the wax uh mannequin uh even though that doesn't make a lot of sense (laughs) it kind of pulled me out of the movie because i was like you can't see this motherfucker breathing like she's freaked the fuck out the famous surgeon can't tell that a human being is it's it's also like has a has a double part humor because uh, Alex, you were saying um, off 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 a uh, recording off screen off camera. Yes, you were saying off camera that uh, the the wax statues are actually the actors. Well, yeah. So the just... the close ups of the wax statue is actually uh, the actress in just like heavy makeup. Hmm. So yeah, double funny. Uh, I guess I should talk about the background of this movie a little bit. It's partly based on a. Uh, piece of fiction called The Hands of Orlock, uh, which had previously been adapted as a silent film uh, starring Conrad Veidt uh, in Germany. Uh, and a fun fact, Conrad Veidt would go on to appear with Peter Lorre and our old pal Claude Rains, all of them in supporting roles in Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So this was its sound adaptation, but I believe the original story doesn't have the, um, the Dr. Gogo character at all. Uh, and so it's sort of like they took these two stories and put them together, which you can kind of sense mm-hmm. when you're watching the film. Uh, but obviously the big star of the film uh, today is Peter Lorre. This was his Hollywood debut. Um, he had come to America to uh, star as Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, uh, which MGM was making. And allegedly someone had pitched to the head of MGM uh they they knew that a movie named Crime and Punishment wouldn't get greenlit. And so uh, they wrote out the plot uh, in simple words <laughs> and gave it to the studio head and said, hey, I've got this idea for a movie. Uh, and he approved it. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, allegedly. Um, 
Yeah, so Peter Lorre would, uh, uh, would star as Russ Colin the Cop, but that movie had been delayed, so it was released after Mad Love. So this is his American film debut. He had made another movie in English directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, which was The Man Who Knew Too Much, which Alfred Hitchcock later remade with Jimmy Stewart in it. Uh, but he was in the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, and in that movie, Peter Lorre, who was German, didn't speak English, so he says all his lines phonetically, uh, and uh, he actually sounds great for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, he had been uh, a somewhat famous uh, actor in Germany, and he had appeared in one of the most famous films of classic German cinema, M, where he played uh, the child-murdering serial killer, uh, and... Shout out to Fritz Lang, that movie rules. <laughs> yes, directed by Fritz Lang. Uh, if you haven't seen M, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Laurie plays a child-murdering serial killer, and he still makes the character sympathetic, uh, which is pretty incredible for a film of that era, and it's an early talkie. Uh, uh, he was a German Jew, and he fled Germany, you know, when the Nazis came to power. First came to England, and then to the United States. Uh, and he has something of a reputation as a horror movie star, but... To my recollection, he wasn't in that many horror movies. Uh, he was in this, uh, and in the 40s, he was in another hand-themed uh, <laughs> horror film called The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh, my God. Uh, and then he was in a couple, um, like, Roger Corman Poe movies uh, with Vincent Price. Uh, but, like, otherwise, he mostly played uh, sort of, like, continental skeevy characters in, like, film noirs. You know, like I said, he was in Casablanca. He was uh, in The Maltese Falcon. Uh, a lot of famous movies like that. And, of course, his very distinctive appearance and way of speaking made him one of the most parodied and imitated people in Hollywood. Like, half of Mel Blanc's, like, one-shot characters on Looney Tunes are just Peter Lorre. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's basically the background of this film. Yeah, I have a small, I have a small tidbit. So there's a, in the beginning of the, of the movie, they, all of our characters are in a theater. Um, and apparently it's, uh, it's supposed to be a reference to the Grand uh, Guign Guignol. Uh, yeah, Le Grand Guignol. Thank you. Oh, man, my French is uh, not, not up to par you these days. You just have to pretend you have a bunch of grapes <laughs> in your mouth and you're saying it. You'd kill it. <laughs> yeah, you have to pretend that language is, like, escaping from your chest. It's, like, crawling out of your neck instead of speaking. See, I I, the embarrassing part is I took several years of French. So, like, I, sh <laughs> I just, I'm not sure how to pronounce G's in the middle of words. <laughs> Uh, I, think I, be I believe it is Le Grand Guignol. If you if you want to go for the like, American pronunciation, it's the Grand Guignol. That's disgusting. Isn't it? <laughs> you want to do what to me, honey? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, that theater there is uh, in, supposed to be that, which um, for uh, um, people like me who did not know what this was until very recently. I can talk about it. Uh, yeah, you should. Great. Um, so the Grand Guignol was uh, a, a theater in Paris and then uh, it was a style that sort of emerged after that. It would be, uh, you'd go and you'd see a bunch of short plays, essentially. They would uh, start with something kind of a little spooky, and then they'd look a comedy. But uh, everyone mostly went there for the horror. And by the end, the last play was always the most horrifying, terrifying one. It was usually super bloody and gruesome. It was super popular uh, starting, I think, in the late 20s. And then uh, in the 30s, it kind of hit its peak. At the It closed down in... 46 or 47 i believe because uh in the words of the the guy who ran the theater uh nothing that they showed on stage could eclipse the horrors of the holocaust that's fucking heavy yeah it actually um didn't close until 62 oh yeah they stopped being popular after after the world war ii though yes absolutely um but yeah so a very a, a nice touch it's always it's it's interesting to um see references in in movies um in older movies and see what they're referencing yeah this movie is big on referencing many many things uh which is super cool <laughs> oh definitely true. this movie is big on referencing other things from like the head up of the whole weird uh pygmalion galatea thing mm -hmm. all the way down to uh sabrina mentioned that uh at the end of the film when peter laurie strangles uh his paramour with her own hair, he recites the end of a poem. Mm. Um, there's also he also uh, in his mind when he's going crazy is repeating a line from the Ballad of Reading Jail of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde, huh. which is great. Yeah, it's the uh, every the 
man kills everything he loves or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, like you mentioned, the 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 Grand Guignol uh, was like a you know a style of theater, and it's in some ways the predecessor of horror in general, but like sort of splatter movies in particular, uh, at least in in like a sort of real ancestral sense. Uh, so it, in a way, I think the self-referentialness of this is a little bit like King Kong in that it's like a horror movie about like set in like a horror theater, you know, there, there's that, that whole element to it as well. It's definitely, um, like you mentioned with all this, these literary references, uh, a very sort of high minded, uh, script, which is interesting. This was made by MGM and it was written oh it was written by John Balderson who wrote the Dracula uh, stage Ooh. adaptation uh, that we talked about way back in episode 1 he yeah. also contributed to the bride of frankenstein Whoa. oh no good what a small little world and of course this movie was directed by our old pal Carl Frund uh, who directed the mummy and was the cinematographer slash actual director of Dracula uh, and this was his uh, not just his final horror movie but his final uh Film in the director's chair. Uh, though he would go on to be a cinematographer in, in uh, many other films. Apparently the filming of this film was super stressful for everyone. Everyone was trying to do everyone else's jobs. Carl Freund was not happy uh, not being able to also be the cinematographer, it sounded like. So he, oh. he kept trying to do all that. The cinematographer was like, yo, fuck you. It sounded like the producer tried to you know direct a bit, but didn't also know what he was doing. So uh, the whole production was apparently just a stressful shit show for everyone. Well, I mean that that scene um, with the uh, the constant paying of bills and the uh, um, <laughs> and the recuperation of the hands was was certainly stressful to watch. So, <laughs> um, and I would like to say a pretty decent representation of like physical therapy. I was ex- I was excited to see it. Hmm. Uh, you know, like a lot of these movies, Carl Frund just drenches this film in the sort of German expressionist aesthetic, which he obviously was raised in, in terms of his career uh, back in Germany, where he had worked. Um, And this is probably some of the last of that really strong influence we're going to see, because after 1936, um, horror movies sort of start to go in a different direction. Uh, So it's fun to see this one last time. Also, another Carl Frund tidbit was that, uh, in addition to being a cinematographer on many films, uh, after this, he was also the cinematographer for I Love Lucy. Uh, <laughs> and in that role, he apparently um, perfected both uh, the lighting used to uniformly light the sets of sitcoms uh, and the three-camera sitcom oh. technique, uh, basically, that was used, uh, you know, up until the modern day. So, uh, pretty important guy. All right. So, anyhow, um, uh, yeah. Peter Laurie, I think we can all agree that he basically steals this movie. Easy, easy. Um, he, he is a creepy, creepy little <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, he has a shaved head in this film. And in the script, apparently, it explicitly says, uh, give Peter Laurie his M look, uh, because he was also had a shaved head in that. So aside from Peter Laurie, uh, like I said, some of the supporting cast, uh, like the guy who plays Rollo and the reporter, are fun. Uh, I think Francis Drake, uh, who plays Yvonne, and Colin Clive, who plays Stephen, both do well in their their roles. Obviously, they're not sort of the the focus of the movie necessarily, even though this is called The Hands of Orlock. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that they, they carry their parts well. I, I actually like Francis Drake in this quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Orlock as a character is fucking so cool because he mm-hmm. is just so, like, chill and reserved the entire time, and it's hard to think that he'd ever kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, even if he's being dragged to the electric check, and he was like, hey... Tell me about the Hoover Dam. <laughs> oh, that's something, ain't it? Oh well, I guess I gotta die now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and and um, the character of of Doctor Gogol is interesting. First of all, Gogol is a Russian name, uh, which is an interesting choice. And I think someone even in the script says, "Ooh, you know, uh, that ugly foreign name or something like that." Mm-hmm. But much like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde that we watched back in nineteen thirty one. Um, they really lay on thick this idea that he's um, in everything except for his romantic obsession, uh, in which he's a psychopath. Uh, he, he's like this incredibly, like, uh, you know, like he's helping orphans and like, you know, performing surgery on little children for free. And there's there's this whole sort of ambiguity that I think works better in this movie than it did in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, yeah, I feel that. Although uh, I do have to say that I... 
often uh i also watch this movie twice and every time that i get to that scene where he's like at the orphan's bedside and gets a phone call and the orphan starts crying he like glares at it like it's a fucking he's like <laughs> shut the fuck up you little shit <laughs> yeah and i mean i think that there there's a debate you could have about uh like how what's the real him you know is he actually just a monstrous asshole uh who does this for some like weird personal like proving proving himself or is it that he does have you know he does have that complexity. I, I don't know. And I don't know if that's something that the movie really sustains that well. But that's a, a question you could pose. I, d- I did read somewhere that originally uh, when he's distracted in the surgery on the little girl towards the end of the movie, uh, the little girl was supposed to die because he was too distracted and it made him shitty at surgery. And I think that would have <laughs> sort, of, sort of brought together those two halves of the characters better. But just having yeah. the, uh, the Asian doctor finish up the surgery just fine. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen Me in that too. Scene. Yeah. <laughs> like we've all agreed, I think Peter Lorre's the best, you know, the, sort of the, the standout performance of this. And he would go on to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a fairly famous actor. I don't want to gloss over it, but it is just like, no, he's really good. You know, it's hard for me to say much more than that. It's like, no, he's he's really good. Like the the scene where he's looking in the mirror, what in the uh, hand washing station, and he's looking at himself, shot in a really excellent way, and you really feel like he's spiraling into uh into the old crazies. You know? Oh yeah, in a scene that would be uh, if we're thinking the same scene, a scene that would later be ripped off in the first Spider-Man movie. Like, I watched that, and I was just like, oh, that's where Sam Raimi got that entire scene from, with the Green Goblin. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and also the scene where um, Gogol uh, meets with uh, Stephen Orlack and uh, tries to convince him that, he, that he, he was the murderer, and that he's Rolo and his head's been reattached. <laughs> um, I fucking love that scene. I love the, the costume, which it appears is basically made, like, the neck brace is... Um, like a like a like a medical neck brace, which you don't realize looking at it, but then he takes it off. It's like, oh, a doctor could have that, <laughs> you know. And and I just love his look in that scene, yeah. and uh, the way he 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 whispers, you know, and he says uh, 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 something like, "You can't be Rolo, Rolo." I saw his head got chopped off, and he says, "Yes, but Doctor Gogol sewed it back on," and it's like, I love it. It's so cool. I also love that yeah, everyone no, just like I... is like totally fine with that. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds like something. He's a good doctor. That's You could do that. <laughs> I mean, it was one emotionally compromised man he was getting to believe him. And one American reporter who wanted that scoop. It's the downfall of all American reporters. I mean, it, yeah, it was definitely enough. It was definitely convincing enough for me when I was, like, half watching it the first time. So I'll, ta- I'll take it. This is, this is kind of a, a tangent to this. But I think this movie's got, like, some really good beats. Mm-hmm. It's got, like, some really, maybe not smart, but, like, at least, well, it does have smart writing, but it's got, like, crisp writing to it. Yeah. That, like, all the pieces kind of fall into place, mm-hmm. um, even if the rest of the movie's kind of all over the place where it goes with it. But, like, like the callback between when Orlac throws the pen the first time and uh, meeting Rolo in the train car. Yeah. Um... Like everything about that Gogol posing as Orla or as a Rolo scene, um, where it's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, this is all no, this is all making perfect sense. Or or when uh, like the 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 creditors show up to uh, demand, you know, their money, and he throws the pen into the wall, <laughs> and he walks over, and he looks really embarrassed, and he says the same line yeah. from the train when he that's, says, "That's what I meant." Yeah, yeah. Well, the the audience might not have known that. Okay, that's all. he says the same line. I'm sorry, I think that's my pen, you know. So, yeah, you know. They, they, and, like, even though the wax doll is kind of weird, the, that element is kind of weird, it does tie into the end. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know, it's kind of, it's looking more modern in its writing, whereas, like, we just said The Bride of Frankenstein has the same two scenes <laughs> uh, back-to-back because they wanted to put Frankenstein in jail first. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, I think an element where uh, this this film is uh, shows its period... Uh, and perhaps is not so woke um, is uh, the drunken maid oh. character uh. Uh, in the, in the 30s um, I think and, and for for a long time you know uh, 
the drunk was a, a very funny character, which we, for the most part, do not uh, really uh, follow today. That someone who's just fucking blackout drunk all the time is is a big laugh. Um, uh, so that uh, that definitely is sort of a, an obnoxious subplot. In a uh, sort of bizarre later piece of analysis, the very famous uh, New York Times film critic Pauline Kael once wrote an editorial uh, about how Citizen Kane uh, had plagiarized this film because uh, she said, yeah, that Orson Welles uh, had plagiarized this film in creating Citizen Kane. She said that um, Kane's Xanadu was uh, based off of Gogol's um, Strange Flat uh, and the fact that both Kane and Gogol were uh, bald eccentrics who owned uh, a, a like a Tropical Birds. Um, and then Peter Bogdanovich wrote a rebuttal. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, the, the director, uh, famous director, uh, and both of them uh, made sure to note in their reviews that they both thought that Mad Love was one of the worst movies they'd ever seen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which is interesting because Peter Bogdanovich made one of the greatest homages to classic horror uh, 1968's Targets. So excited when we get to watch that. It's on our list. We're going to fucking watch it. Oh, yeah. We're definitely going to watch That's that. That's a good fucking movie. Uh, tune in three years from now when we talk about Targets, folks. I don't know. I think it makes the whole Gogol... This is completely unrelated, <laughs> but... I think it makes the whole Gogol character more... Um, like, his obsession, his, like, lust, is, like, even weirder and that he just spent, uh, like, three months watching her every night in a scene where she gets tortured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's that, yeah, you're 100% right, because that is something that the movie doesn't really go too deeply (laughs) into, but is profoundly fucking weird. Also, uh, speaking of the early part of the film, when Dr. Gogol is invited to the the cast party at the the end of the run, uh, and, you know, when, when he gets his kiss... Uh, from uh, from Yvonne, rather than a demure peck on the cheek, you know, he, he sort of lustfully grabs her. Um, I think that that scene is, uh, is a, uh, another excellent scene of Laurie's performance because you, you go from feeling like you have this incredibly, it, it, there's this palpable discomfort where he's standing there and, like, you know, between uh, him and Yvonne where, like, you feel like, oh, Jesus, this is, you know, like, what a horrible, like, social situation. I, like, I, I, you get this ambient embarrassment. And then he, like, switches into this, like, weird, lecherous creep thing. And you're like, oh, what the fuck's up with this guy? Uh, which is uh, fun. Love that performance. God, yeah, and that, that, that scene where he's like, you know, you, you, you love your husband, but you cannot love me is like, she really gave me the creeps. I do think uh, something about this, like, obviously, you have to get a denouement at some point, and, you know, so whatever. Uh, you have the end scene where she's hiding, uh, she's pretending to be the wax statue, and then, you know, he realizes that she's it's actually her. I mean, okay, yeah, he's crazy. I, I think it's a little bit contrived that he suddenly decides that actually he wants to murder her. Again, I, I understand it's a necessity of the script, but it's like, ah, okay, whatever. It's fine, you know, just my gripe. I thought that scene where he he tries to murder her would have worked way better if he had just normal strangled her. The hair thing is dumb. It's super dumb. There's there's no reason for it. (laughs) It's a literary reference, but, like, that doesn't make it better. No, you can't strangle somebody with their hair. That's... (laughs) That's not a thing. You could if you try hard enough. <laughs> I don't think we would have lost anything if he just recited the poem while strangling her. I mean, he's a surgeon. He's probably has good hand strength. <laughs> That's true. Um, I think, yeah, he recites a couple lines from it, but, like, it's not... But, like, the only memorable thing of that poem for me is the, the hair strangling, so I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> well, gang, um, is there anything else uh, we want to talk about with Mad Love? One other thing I liked about this movie a lot was that one bit where she's listening to him not play the piano very well, and then she hears his piano music, and she's like, oh, you're better, and then she runs in, and it's a record that he put on of his old performance. Yeah. That's great. I don't have anything to say here, but that's a great scene. I like that. I think it's so funny how she's written about, like, not being able to play the piano anymore. (laughs) Like, like, oh, the piano is his life. 
the piano, the piano. He can't play the piano. It's like, yes, 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 woman. <laughs> we understand your concerns. Is the piano the only thing you love about your husband? Maybe. Can we also just talk about how um, the weird, gross, hetero bullshit they do, where, like, if he coughs twice during a performance, then he's, like, fucking in love with her so hard? Like, it doesn't... It, that's gross. I don't put that out there. Yeah, I'd, I would... Uh, no questions asked. Before, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> oh, God. There's there's another there's another one. Um, our our uh, His dad is, like... Well, if, yeah, I was going to mention that, actually. Isn't yeah. there something else she could do with her time? <laughs> or something along those lines, and it's just disgusting. <laughs> he goes to his father, who's like a jeweler, yeah. and his father's, he says, I knew, I know that you would never accept that I'm a world-famous concert pianist, and that you always <laughs> wanted me to be a jeweler like you, but I, uh, please bring, you know, let me be back in your life. And the father's like, no, I have to be evil. <laughs> the fact that you didn't want to become a jeweler means that I'm going to insinuate that your wife should become a prostitute? Like, I could help what? you, or I could force your wife into sexual slavery. Uh, good options, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, gang, uh, would you recommend Mad Love? I think this movie is a lot more fun to talk about than it is to watch. I agree. Um, yeah. And I think that it's it's great if you're going to talk to people about it, but if you, you know, it's a Saturday night and you're home alone, and you're like, what should I put on? Mad Love is not the movie you should put on. <laughs> I, I kind of think the opposite of that, where I, I enjoyed myself a lot in the moment of watching it, but then afterwards, while I was trying to put together my thoughts about it, I was kind of like, wait a second, a lot of that was dumb. I don't... <laughs> I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I'd recommend it, per se. I don't know. I don't think it's quite recommendable. It's enjoyable, but I wouldn't push anyone to go out of their way. I agree with you, Justice. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I guess probably, yeah, I guess I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I like it a lot, but I would not recommend it to most people. Yeah, it's it's tough because I like... I definitely enjoyed the like literary refer- references, but I don't think I enjoyed the movie. So, all right. Well, uh, what's the uh, what is the moral of this story then? Um, if someone loves you and you don't love them back, run. <laughs> Keep your hair short. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in, folks. I hope you all had fun out there in podcast land. I know I did. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you for being back with us every week. It's always a pleasure. I always have fun. Gang, if uh, if you like the show, if you're listening on iTunes, please feel free to leave a rating, leave a review. Tell your friends. Uh, but really, leaving a, a review actually helps us out a lot. It really helps raise the visibility of the, uh, the show. Uh, we do have a Patreon. You can visit us uh, at patreon.com slash spookorama. Uh, you can become a Patreon. That'll help us improve the show, and you'll get access to all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, twitter.com at spookorama we do have an email we do have an email yeah you can send us fan mail yeah send us fan mail to spookoramapodcast at gmail.com well anyhow say goodbye everybody goodbye everybody see ya see ya next week bye achondracula bye everyone there used to be a lot of things that I